0: Mr. Saxon, this is Professor Joff de Root. I've talked to a man who does archaeological digs along the old California Trail. He has some stories of legends of the old rock mounds and canyons that crisscross the area. This might be good for an interview. This is Sam Saxon. Along with Professor Joff de Root, And you're listening to Tales Unveiled. Where we travel across Oklahoma for ghost stories. As well as urban legends and local history. It wasn't until June before the professor and I were able to meet up again. Taking separate cars, we traveled west to Hinton, Oklahoma. The pandemic didn't stop the professor from his research.
1: He was eager to meet Art Peters, I'm the curator slash director of the Hinton Historical Museum in Hinton, Oklahoma,
0: who was able to share tales of the wagon trails and the mysterious mounds. Before we dive into these stories, I started off by asking Art
1: what the museum was well known for and what Visitors can expect to uncover there. Our claim to fame is the largest horse carriage collection in Oklahoma. We also have the largest telephone collection in the state, and we have the second largest barbed wire collection in the nation. Our barbed wire collection is the largest in the state of Oklahoma as well.
0: So, what's your origin story? How'd you get involved?
1: Oh, I have loved history since I was a kid. If I knew when I was in school, that there was such a job as an archeologist, I may have went to college, but uh, that's my dream job and that's kind of what I'm doing now. And uh, the museum, my my family had an antique car museum in the 1970s when I was in high school uh, in El Reno. And uh, just as I was getting into the museum, my dad sold out the museum. So, when I came to Hinton, Oklahoma, to Red Rock Canyon to camp out, I found they were building a new museum in town, so I stopped in and uh, just to, out of curiosity, see what they were doing, and they needed volunteers, and they needed a, a couple old cars to go downstairs with the wagons, and so it was just sort of a uh, godsend. I was just uh, fill right in, and... They hired me right away to be not only the curator, but the director. So that's how I come to be here. Now that I'm retired, I can do my dream job for free.
0: That's a wonderful story. Uh, Tell us about the history of the region.
1: The history of the town was uh, in Oklahoma, we had the all-famous land run. And after five land runs, there was still territory to be opened up to white settlement. So they started having land lotteries, took away a lot of the chaos of the land runs. And uh, this area of Oklahoma was opened in 1901 to the land lottery. And you, when you uh, gained property in the land lottery, you had one year to actually arrive and settle on that property. So 1902, was when a lot of things were being established and the town of Hinton was established in 1902. There was a dispute at uh, Bridgeport. Bridgeport was here before the land run. Uh, Bridgeport was a neighboring town to the north across Route 66 and across uh, I-40 over by the river. When the stagecoaches went from uh, Weatherford to Reno, that was the place where the stagecoaches would have to stop and wait for the river to recede before they could sometimes cross. So naturally a little community would uh, become established there and that community grew to almost a town of 3000 people before any automobiles ever showed up. By 1902, some automobiles were showing up but our first automobile in Hinton did not show up till 1908. And by 1910, there were eight automobiles in this town. But there was a dispute at Bridgeport when one of the water wheels uh, got some bad water in it. They had to shut down that water wheel. There were two water wheels supplying that town, and the uh, west side of town would not supply the east side of town. They would not share the water wheel. So not only the people who were now without water, but some of the prominent people who were uh, upset that their other uh, neighbors would not share with those. A lot of people picked up their businesses and moved them over here where two farmers gave up 80 acres apiece to, to start the town. And so they moved buildings over here, established the town. The name of Hinton was Uh, decided by one of the men who was instrumental in getting the town moved over here. Uh, The other fellow says, uh, Mr. So-and-so, we want you to name our town. He said, I'll bring you a name tomorrow. His wife's maiden name was Hinton. So they named the town Hinton.
0: Uh, Tell us about your archeological work.
1: Uh, After I started here at the museum, i had learned about a uh, wagon trail that passed through oklahoma during the gold rush in red rock canyon there's very well established wagon ruts which is actually the wagon tracks where the wagons will lock up the back wheels and let the wagon slide down a incline into the canyon there happened to be a ramp of dirt right where the canyon rim met that ramp of dirt, so it was a suitable way to get a wagon train into the canyon. There happened to be a ramp of dirt at the north end of the canyon where the wagon trains could go back out. As the wagon trains traveled, they would stop for water anywhere they could find water. If it was a stream or if it was a pond, they would have to boil that water to uh, be able to drink it, but if they could stop at the head of the canyons, and find the pools of water that were fed by natural springs. That was good clean water they could drink right then. As they traveled across the area, anywhere through this Hinton area, North Caddo County where Hinton is located, the canyons that flow north to the Canadian River or south to the Ouachita River all have springs, and they would drop buckets on ropes down into those springs to water the barrels, but Red Rock Canyon was the only canyon in the county that you could actually get a wagon train in. The families could all water their own barrels. They could be in and out in a couple hours and on their way instead of taking a half a day to water barrels by ropes and buckets. So as I learned about this road, I got to reading things, and I eventually discovered nobody has gone out to actually see if they could find a wagon camp where wagons camped and if any items would have been discarded or dropped or lost and so I started doing that in 2006. Mm-hmm. What are some of the interesting things you found? Uh, one very interesting thing I have found is a fork that was run over by a wagon wheel when it was smashed into the ground. It was not a a real high quality fork, so it broke. It did bend and it did break. And the bent parts, the tongs of the fork are still bent in the upper position where it still fits perfect on a wagon wheel today. One of the uh, more bizarre things I've ever found was a human tooth filling. That was a stage stop on the wagon trail. One very interesting thing that people I, especially us historians, never dreamed was on a wagon train until you find one, was this uh, lipstick tube. When I found that, I thought, this has to be something besides a lipstick tube. But when I did research, lipstick came in tubes by 1915. That was the first patent on lipstick tube. By 1923, you could adjust the lipstick out of the tube. But this tube was blackish metal. It had a honeycomb design all the way around it. And when we get it back to the museum and we clean it up a little bit, we can read the words 24 karat gold stamped around the base of this tube. The 24 karat is spilt, the word karat is spilt with a K instead of a C. And I learned actually on Antique Roadshow is that in america they spell 24 karat with a c but when things come from european countries they spell it with a k so this lipstick tube came from a european country made its way to america it was on a wagon train it was lost and i found it 150 years later and it is a very very interesting piece to to tell people about another item that we find a lot of in wagon train campsites is bullets, bullet shells and shotgun shells. The shotgun shells always have information stamped on the head. Usually the shotgun shell is all gone except for the brass head. And with that information stamped on there, we can usually tell a lot of history. We can almost always date the shell and we can tell who the maker was, we can tell if it was intended for military or if it was intended for civilian. Uh, One very interesting thing I always look for, the first thing when I uncover a shotgun shell is that information and I look for the word new. There was a time when the first shotgun shells smoked a lot of smoke when you shot them, just like the old muzzleloader, the black powder smoked a lot. But the Peters brand company came out in the mid 1850s with the new smokeless powder. If you find a a shotgun shell that says new club, new chief, new nitro, a uh, couple other new words, there's uh, new. There's about five different new, uh, new chief, new club type of words, and that means this is manufactured with the new smokeless powder. So you can shoot that without having the big smoke blast in front of your face. So if we find some that don't have the word new and they still have other characteristics of being old, we know they predate that but I've never found a coin, and I've never found a piece of jewelry in any wagon train campsite. But I would much rather find the old shotgun shells that can tell me much more information about the uh, date that something, if, if I was to find a coin and it had a date, I know it could not have been dropped before the date, but it could have been dropped a long time afterwards. But the shotgun shells are a little more accurate. Fascinating! Who would have thought that shotgun
0: shells would have been such a, yeah. a great marker for dating? Right, yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about the mounds?
1: Uh, the mounds, there's a series of mounds between Hinton and Hyde Row. Hyde Row is another 10 miles west of Hinton on I-40. And out in that area, there's a group of mounds, a series of mounds, and the uh, most northern mound is about four miles south of i-40 and then there are more mounds that go about 15 miles south and they're about 15 miles from east to west in that area where the group of mounds are Uh, the wagon trail passes out of the town of hinton and on west towards weatherford south of hydro south of weatherford and it passes right through some of those mound areas. Every one of those mounds has legends about them. They have stories about them. They, most of them have names. All of them technically have names. Uh, six of them or so are grouped together, the closest ones in the grouping. The last proper name given to those were Steens Buttes. There was a a bridge building expedition that came through in 1858, nine years after the wagon road was established for the gold rush passing through during that uh, gold rush time. Uh, These mounds were originally named the natural mounds by Lieutenant Simpson, who was the chief surveyor of the wagon road. He uh, named that grouping the natural mounds, but then again, that was 1849, and in 1858, uh, Captain Bale was the expedition leader that was making improvements to the wagon road, and his leading officer was Officer Steen, Enoch Steen. So he named those groupings of mounds uh, Steen's Buttes, and that's the last proper name that was given in 1858. Today, a lot of people just call them the Hydro Mounds because they're closer to Hydro than any other town. They're about eight miles west of Hinton, but they're only about six miles south of Hydro. The uh, mounds uh, have stories, some of the stories, we call them a lot of times legends. What are some of these legends? One legend, the most popular, the most famous mound that the wagon train saw and would have recognized was Rock Mary. Uh, Mary Conway was a 17-year-old girl on this first wagon train that was being led by the military who were surveying and uh, making sure this was a suitable passageway to Santa Fe. And then from Santa Fe, there were trails on to southern parts of California. As the military men were uh, surveying, leading the wagon train, they did know that there was this one girl, there's probably several girls, Mary Conway's entire family was along, and she had uh, 10, there were 10 people in her family, so she had eight siblings. She was the oldest of the siblings, but she was very pretty, She was very uh, friendly. All of the military men wanted to get engaged to her before they reached California. 16, 17 years old, was marrying age for women in the 1800s, and she was 17 years old and not married. Her father and his five brothers were cousin to President James Madison. So she was second cousin, so she had semi-connections to the White House, so what officer would not want to marry her if he was available and she was available? As they traveled along, Captain Bale, who was the leader of this expedition, writes in his journal that some of the soldiers are becoming rivals in winning her attention. That's a polite way of saying they're getting in fights over her. It's, it's been 45 days since they left out of Fort Smith to reach Hinton, Oklahoma, and they camped a little past uh, that mound after they named it. So in 45 days, it's my opinion, she's either enjoying the attention or none of these guys are suitable for her. I don't know why she hasn't paid the guy yet, but one way to impress a girl on a wagon train would be to rescue her. And since Indians never attacked this wagon train, we do know that they were never attacked, but the Indians did often visit this wagon train. Uh, But since no one's gonna obviously attack this wagon train, the next semi-heroic thing you can do is make a big production out of naming one of these mounds after her. So, Lieutenant Simpson nonchalantly walks away from the wagon train and when he gets off to this first mound that they come across, it's not a true mound, it is really a big sandstone rock pillar out in the prairie, but it's more oddly shaped than the rest. It's fascinating to Lieutenant Simpson who would be like an archeologist of today. He's a surveyor, he's very interested in the rocks. Uh, I said archeologist, but he may have been more like a geologist of today that studies the rocks. He ran his horse out there, went to the top, unfurled the flag, and as others now on horseback, not the entire wagon train, but others, uh, they're a couple hundred yards off of the wagon train to visit this man. Mary Conway was on her horse, and she had already started having uh, feelings for Lieutenant Harrison. And uh, as they approach the mound, Lieutenant Simpson names the mound after her, Rock Mary. But Lieutenant Harrison yells up at him, Hey, name it after her, this Arkansas girl. And so he did. And that, people around here say, is a legend. But that story is documented. Lieutenant Simpson, when he reached Santa Fe, his orders were changed. He was not gonna return to Fort Smith. He was going on to Navajo country with uh, another team to do a peace treaty, and he was gonna survey more out there. So he was ordered to uh, finish your uh, maps and send those back to Washington so his journal became the official report which has that story in it which is a documented fact that we can still find so that's a documented story and we can call it a legend i don't know the true meaning of that of what makes a legend a legend or story
0: but there are certainly supernatural legends
1: there are that too uh one of the uh mounds in the grouping that uh, was called Steens Buttes, one of those mounds is called Crown Mound and one of those mounds is called Dead Woman Mound. One of those mounds has been renamed to Wagon Wheel Mound. Uh, Some of those mounds still have no name but because they're in the group they get Steens Buttes attached to them. Uh, The Dead Woman Mound, there's really no uh, superficial or ghost stories or legends about that mound except a lady was buried there who was a wagon traveler the story goes that she and her husband was traveling with their young daughter and that's all it says young daughter I would guess from six years old to ten years old and the young daughter got sick and she got too sick to travel. So the mom and dad and daughter held back uh, amongst those mounds and they were going to wait for the daughter to uh, get better and then they would catch the next wagon train coming through and continue on to California. And in those days, once a wagon train headed out of Fort Smith, exactly one week later, the next wagon train would head out. I haven't read anything. We don't know if wagon trains eventually caught up to each other. If a wagon trains having a lot of breakdowns, they may uh, be joining the wagon train behind them if they catch up to them. I haven't actually read anything like that, but every week wagon trains pass by. So the man's idea of catching another wagon train was uh, actually something that was likely to happen. But after the daughter began to get better, the mother got sick. And then the mother stayed sick. And now wagon trains quit coming. There would be no wagon trains passing through this area after about September. You had to leave Fort Smith by about the 4th of July to be able to get into California before the winter set in and you would be blocked like the Donner party got blocked. When the mother got sick and stayed sick longer she eventually passed away during the winter now after no wagon trains are passing in September and the man realizes we're not going to get to California till next year they need to spend the winter there and you have to remember in those days there were no towns or cities there was a few trading posts but none this far west so they were stranded until that winter They needed a winter shelter besides their covered wagon. This crown mound did have a natural ledge sticking out on one side of it where it looked like a beginning of a cave. And because these mounds, the bases of them are sandstone, it was easy to carve a cave out. And so the legend or story is that that family carved a cave out to stay in and spend the winter there. Hmm. The mother did pass away during the winter. In those days, white man passing through the Indian territory that this was before Oklahoma became a state. The Indians were friendly to the wagon travelers mostly because they were in big groups. But if you were stranded alone or in a very small group, let's say two or three wagons with about ten people, you are very vulnerable to be attacked by unfriendly Indians. And if you had buried somebody on the wagon train and the Indians knew there was a white person grave available, they would dig into it, they would desecrate it, and they would leave it exposed. Hmm. And to keep that from happening, this man needed to bury his wife, but somewhere away from where they were staying in case they did not get out of the area before the Indians returned for the summer. In this area, the Plains Indians drifted with the buffalo. They would be south in Texas with the buffalo during the winter the uh, man and the daughter obviously did catch another wagon train and move on but he needed to bury his wife and not where they made the cave indians would realize someone did spend a winter here and making a cave is not what the indians uh, would have done so to hide a grave somewhere else would be the logical thing to do around the mountains they all have uh, rubble around them where silted dirt collects. It's easy to dig. These mounds are natural mounds. They're not burial mounds for the Indians. They did not build them. They're all about 100 feet to 120 feet tall. So the next neighboring mounds, somewhere around those would be the ideal place to bury her, and the mound that he chose eventually took on the name Woman Mound, and so that's how that story came to be. As you travel on west, just before you exit out of the county, there is one mound that is called Ghost Mound. Mm. And that is named by the Indians who lived here before the white man ever showed up. That mound has a couple of stories that uh, the Indians told stories about. Uh, The first story is about two and then brothers who were out on the prairie collecting ponies to bring back to their village. And as they were out in the area, they had collected a group of ponies. They had camped at that mound, at the base of that mound. And during the night, one of the brothers woke up to find his brother and all the ponies were gone. So he went searching for them. He searched and he searched. He could not find the brother or the ponies. So he eventually backtracked back to the mound to see maybe if if they showed back up, but they did not show back up. And while he was at the mound, it's said that a white owl flew off of to the top of the mound and circled its way higher and higher as it screeched. And the surviving brother took that to mean that was his brother's spirit uh... sending into the heavens Mm -hmm. and so the brother and the ponies were never heard of or found and that's the story of uh... ghost mound uh... that the indians told the second story is that there was one day a uh, Indian brave from a northern tribe of Indians who happened to come this far south. He was searching for other Indians to trade with for his northern tribe. The Indians had a uh, teepee village at the base of this mound and When he came into this village he spent some time with them he fell in love with one of the indian maidens of the village but he could not marry her right then he had to return to his people to let them know he had found other indian tribes farther south that they could trade with but he promised her he would return as soon as he could to marry her after some time went by i would guess maybe a year or so she realized he is not going to return and now she was sad so to mourn in private she went to the top of the mound and she stayed up there and mourned for some time after a while someone came looking for her some say it was her father some say it was someone else someone came looking for her and when they got up on top of that mound they did not see her So they hollered out her name, and she was startled and frightened. And when she uh, jumped in her fear, she fell off of the mound. And there are two footprints that are embedded in the limestone rock on the top of that mound. One looks like a person that maybe was wearing a moccasin, a sandal, or a boot. It's sort of the general shape of a foot with a heel imprint and it looks like someone stepped in mud when it was soft and this has solidified. It's the general shape, you cannot see any boot nail prints or tread or anything like that. But on the opposite side of that top, there is what looks like a barefooted person's footprint, toes, heel and everything. It's the right foot and it's twisted to the left. It's sort of in a boomerang type of a shape. And it is very near the edge of the uh, ledge, the very top edge of that mound. So whether or not that legend is true and they got footprints to go with it, uh, that's anybody's guess. Uh, did you want to hear some stories about the canyons? Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The canyon that the Methodist camp is at, its name that is still on people's abstracts today is, the the proper name of that canyon is Devils Canyon. There are two Devils Canyons in Oklahoma, and one of them is down by Altus. I'm going to say Greer County down in that uh, southwest corner. Uh, both of them have same stories on how they were named. When the surveyors were surveying this area to get everything sectioned off and uh, ready for the land run, if the canyon, if a if a creek, if a mound, if a large meadow had a name that was named previously by the Indians or by excavations coming through, if it had a name, they used that name. But a lot of the creeks and canyons did not have names. This particular canyon the uh, Caddo Indians did live in, they called it, I will give my way of saying that word, it's probably way wrong, something like Gachamachini or Soca Machini, something along that line. Translated means place of departed spirits. If the white man heard the Indians say spirit, they automatically translated that to mean devil, and so that's why it was called Devil's Canyon. But Place of Departed Spirits would obviously tell you that there are burials in that canyon. Hmm. The Caddo Indians were a mound-building tribe of Indians that did come out of Tennessee, Louisiana, across Texas. Eventually they were put here, and this is where they landed last. lastly. In that canyon, we do know that there are two mounds that were built by Indians. Hmm. Uh, One of them is a chief's or a medicine man's mound, and one of them, we believe, is a burial mound. And uh, so that uh, is how that canyon got named, and we do know that there are Indian mounds there with burials from way back in the day.
0: So how can people learn more about you in the Hinton Museum?
1: Basically, just come here and visit. I'm the curator. I'm here generally six days a week. We're closed on Sundays, Monday through Saturday. We do not have a Facebook page. My books are for sale that I've written here at the museum, at restaurants in town, and at Red Rock Canyon. But the best thing is just come here.
0: With my equipment ready to go, I joined up with a professor who was already exploring the hidden Historical Museum. I found him in front of the barbed wire collection, paying close attention to each unique strand. They seemed to inspire him because he asked if we could visit Stockyard City next. I asked him why, and he simply replied, You never know what you can find from the past. Tales Unveiled is a production of the Show Starts Now studios and is produced by Dennis Spielman. The voice of Sam Saxton is Dennis Spielman. The voice of Professor Jeff DeRoot is Jeff Provine. We would like to thank Art Peters at the Hinton Historical Society for the Wagon Trail Tales in this episode. The opinions and stories told are that of the individuals and do not reflect their employer, affiliates, and spirits mentioned. Join us on Patreon to help support Tales Unveiled while getting exclusive rewards. Visit TalesUnveiled.com to find out how to become a Patron Supporter. Before we go, I'd like to share this advice from Richard Parsons. The road back may not be as short as we wish, but there are solid reasons to feel confident about the future.